0: My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 13, My Insidious, Self-Reflexive Racism On multiple occasions, I spent a few wonderful months living in Cape Town, South Africa, truly one of the most stunningly beautiful places on Earth. However, the times I was there in the mid-1990s were quite complicated. It had been barely five years since the end of apartheid, The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was in full swing and broadcasting daily. I truly admired the simple brilliance of using brutal honesty to address the deep racial wounds of the apartheid era. The healing process was an ongoing, living, breathing, ever-present issue. During a short business trip to Johannesburg, I discovered a friend from Cape Town, Freddie, was also going to be in Joburg visiting his mother and sisters. Freddie came from a family of wealthy white farmers nearby in the Transvaal, the region most fraught with the racial violence during apartheid and in the post-apartheid eras. Freddie's family prided themselves in having a wonderful relationship with their black friends and neighbours. Whenever violence broke out in the Transvaal, which was often, their black friends would rush to protect them. Freddie and his family were understandably very proud of this. However, it hadn't stopped some outside agitators from murdering Freddie's dad less than a year before. We were all walking in downtown Joburg. I was chatting with Fred's mom while Freddie and his three sisters were walking in front of us. This perfectly harmless 15-year-old black kid started walking towards us, and Freddie's mom grabbed her purse just a little bit tighter. I gave her a bit of a sideways glance, and she stopped me, put a hand on each of my shoulders, turned me towards her, and with a tear coming down one cheek, she said, But you didn't notice. Not one of my daughters grabbed their purses any tighter, and I am so proud of that. Wow, I thought. There you have it. That's the reason they've come farther in five years than Americans have in 500 They're honest with themselves about their own insidious racism. Something we older Americans, of all races, are particularly bad at. If we can't even admit to ourselves what our innermost racist thoughts are, then there's absolutely no hope of addressing them with each other honestly. Older generations in America have spent our entire lives saying what we think the listener wants to hear. So much so that I often ask myself if we Americans even know our own truth. Until Americans of all races are able to admit our innermost insidious racist thoughts and then sit down and have honest conversations about them with each other, we're stuck. Now, with new legislation banning books on the subject and preventing us from teaching our history to our children, We are in a proverbial Gordian's knot impacted by insidious racism. Personally, I have faith that our amazing youth will finally break this logjam. According to the Oxford Language Dictionary, the adjective insidious is defined as proceeding in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. I'm an old white man who just happens to be gay, but over the years I've come to realize I unintentionally, or maybe a better word would be I subconsciously, go to great lengths to disavow the first part of my visually obvious identity, the white part. To put it another way, I've had to admit to myself that I am an insidious racist against my own demographic. How can I do my part in righting the wrongs of racism when I myself am an insidious racist against myself? This was first pointed out to me when I was living in Camden, an all-black neighborhood in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Shopping at Target with a neighbor who happened to be black, suddenly all the sliding doors opened at the same time, and this wall of white guys started walking towards us. She burst out laughing and said, You know you've been the only white guy in the block for way too long, when your reaction to a bunch of guys who look just like you is fear. I realized she was right. I'm instinctually suspicious of people who look like me, white people. This suspicion and fear of my own demographic is nothing more than a gut reaction to my lifetime of experiences as the victim of violent homophobia, perpetrated by white people, mostly men. I was a very effeminate little boy in a very homophobic Mormon community. Many of my earliest childhood memories are of me being hazed by the other white boys, and of course there was my Mormon bishop who commanded my older brother to beat the queer out of me, then an entire childhood of non-stop hazing from the adults in my life, the countless jobs I was fired from, remembering my boyfriend who was murdered because he was gay, the haunting sound of an innocent young man's head exploding as I watched gay bashers beat him with 2 by 4s and the armed policeman who just stood next to me and watched with a smug smile on his face. And don't even get me started on white America's unchristlike response to AIDS. In every single instance, without exception, the perpetrators mentioned above were all white. And most of them were shiny old white men in positions of authority wearing cheap polyester suits. As I've said before, shiny old white men in cheap polyester suits is my least favorite and most feared demographic. That's also a very accurate description of the men who ran the Mormon church in my day, many of whom belonged to that endless army of my Mormon polygamist cousins. But now, I'm an old white man. Hopefully not a shiny one. I definitely have no authority and I wouldn't be caught dead in a cheap polyester suit. But an old white man all the same. So imagine this perplexing existential conundrum I find myself in. I am an insidious racist against myself. Now, as I get older, I am ever increasingly the victim of insidious anti-old white man discrimination. But if I'm perfectly honest with myself, I have to admit to myself that were I not myself, I would in all likelihood discriminate or at the very least be very suspicious of myself because I look more and more like myself one of those countless old white guys who made my Utah childhood, my time in the military, and much of my American adulthood exceedingly challenging. Now, I completely understand that this rather humorous situation is in no way equivalent to the very serious racial issues many in our country are grappling with. Nor is it as frightening as the homophobia and anti-gay violence that will ever haunt the memories of my past. There are times, though, when my demographic self-loathing Really pisses me off. My mother spent her final years in a small town in central Arizona. Payson, as the place is called, has the alarming distinction of having one of the largest populations of white supremacists in America. Nothing instills fear in the heart of this old fact faster than some baba in a pickup truck with a shotgun rack and an American flag sticker in his back window. One day, while visiting my mom, it occurred to me though hang on. I'm a veteran. Nobody has the right to turn the flag of the nation I proudly served into a symbol of violent oppression against a veteran because that veteran happens to be gay. But that's pretty much where it ended. I mean, what am I supposed to do with this righteous indignation? Stand on my tippy toes and timidly tap on Bubba's tinted windows like Oliver Twist and say, please sir, your flagrant use of the flag is a violent symbol of oppression for it's flustering the fraternal order of frightened faggots. Yeah, right. That's clearly not going to work. I mean, if I'm going to go down as a martyr, at least give me an audience in Times Square, not some 7-Eleven parking lot in Payson, Arizona. The other thing that frankly confuses the hell out of me is how infuriated I become every time I am the victim of anti-old-white-guy discrimination, even though, as I said above, I would probably treat me the way they treat me were I not me. I will even take it a step further and admit I am often guilty of assuming, if you look like me, obviously you don't think like me. It's not just confusing, it's downright infuriating. Am I so very upset by this, because as an old white man, to those outside my pigmentally challenged demographic, we all look the same, and I no longer stand out, or... Is it because somewhere buried deep within my wonderbred DNA, I believe nobody has the right to discriminate against white people, even though I do it myself? Or maybe it's because I believe my lifelong devotion to fighting bigotry in all forms has earned me the right to be instantly visually recognizable as the opposite of my own worst demographic stereotype. In spite of the fact that they have a point, I really do look like an old white supremacist. It's all so very frustrating, but let me give you some tangible examples so you know what I'm talking about. First, there's the other white people who just look at me and assume I'm going to be a racist like them. Example number one, and this has happened multiple times. I'm in a waiting room or standing with a group of people when the nice young trans lady or the last minority leaves and the white guy next to me whispers an anti-trans or racist joke in my ear. What the fuck? Why do they always tell me? Why do they always think I'm the guy who's going to be okay with their bigotry and hatred? Another time in Florida, I'm waiting for a bus, chatting with this sweet Dominican lady, and some white punk riding by on his bike slams on his brake and screams, you should stick with your own kind. This time I have to say something. She is my kind. We're American. Okay, it wasn't exactly eloquent, but it was the best I could do under pressure. Her response, however, was not only eloquent, it was downright elegant. She put one arm around my waist, threw him daggers with her eyes, and started to sing Amazing Grace. Then there was the time at my gym here in Portland. I was wearing my favorite workout shirt, which happens to have a German flag on it. Now, please keep in mind, the percentage of our population who self-identify as neo-Nazis is many times higher than that of modern Germany. I lived in Germany for years. Contemporary Germans have this nonchalant, non-issue attitude towards race, which is quite enviable. But that didn't stop some white lady from asking the management to kick me out for being a neo-Nazi. Again. I was flabbergasted and furious for days. I must have written a half a dozen letters to no one. Now, it's bad enough when it's people I don't like who are making these assumptions. But what's worse, what for me is much, much worse, is when someone from my own chosen camp, you know, the people who are not pigmentally challenged like I am, when they assume I'm exactly what I appear to be, I get so upset I could self-combust. It's the day before Gay Pride, I just bought some hair dye and was planning to dye my beard purple for the first time. On the way home, I stopped at my favourite used clothing store looking for something fun to wear when I realised the beautiful young lady at the cash register had dyed her hair four different colors. And it was perfect. There was no bleeding of the colors at all. I was thrilled because what I really wanted was to dye my beard like a gay rainbow. So of course I had to ask her, how on earth did you dye your hair so perfectly? To which she responded, would you ask me that if I were white? I was gobsmacked. Absolutely speechless. By the time I got home, I was incensed and remained obsessively furious about it for days. To give you a more humorous example, one Halloween back in Camden, Minnesota, where I was the only white guy on the block, I was really looking forward to handing out candy to all the cute neighbor kids in their costumes. I really hadn't thought about what costume I would wear, But I had just returned from that convention in Dallas, and of course, I had that obligatory cowboy hat that we all got at that convention in Dallas, so I donned the hat, put on some old cowboy boots, a pair of old jeans, and a wife beater. The children were terrified of me. Now, these were kids I knew, but their mothers had to literally push them forward and compel them to reluctantly take candy from me. Fortunately, The second group of kids belonged to the same neighbor I had gone shopping with who I mentioned above. She waited till her children were out of earshot, leaned in and said, Sweetheart, when you're the only white guy in the block, don't dress like trash. It scares the children. So I put on my best casual Friday clothes and Halloween proceeded without further incident. Just a couple weeks ago, I misread my work schedule at the Melody Event Center where I occasionally pick up shifts. I had unfortunately shown up for work on the wrong day. I always parked my electric motorcycle inside, but on that occasion, I decided to make an exception. There was a Latina woman I didn't recognize monitoring the door, and she was clearly having some kind of an anxiety episode, so I decided to park outside just this once. After locking up my motorcycle, I went to the door, and expecting her to just let me in, I explained I was a member of staff. Suddenly, she lunged towards me with her arm outstretched to push me away. I quickly jumped back so as not to make physical contact, thinking she might accuse me of touching her or something. Then she leaped behind the door, slammed it shut, and screamed at me to go away. Again, I tried to explain I'm only trying to get to work, but it was clear trouble was brewing, and I was going to get blamed for it. As I started walking away, she yelled at me to call my office. At this point, I was completely flustered but I had to admit that really was the best solution. So I thanked her without turning around to look at her and continued to walk away. With my back towards her, about 7 to 10 feet away from her, while looking for a place to sit across the street, I reached into my back pocket and unfortunately said out loud, oh fuck, I forgot my phone. This poor lady went ballistic and had a full-on anxiety meltdown, accusing me of screaming profanities and racial slurs at her. I became hyper-aware of my physicality. I made sure my hands were behind my back in a non-threatening position. I intentionally hunched over so as not to look like I was puffing out my chest, and in the calmest voice I could possibly muster, I explained, Madam, I'm terribly sorry, but that is not at all what just happened here. No amount of rationale or reasoning could possibly penetrate this poor woman's full-on anxiety meltdown. There was no way to make her understand her accusations of my alleged aggressive profanity and racism were clearly nothing more than a reflection of her own insidious racist paranoia. But how can I condemn a Latina woman's insidiously racist fear and paranoia of old white men when I'm often guilty of the exact same thing? If anything, I genuinely feel sorry for the lady and hope she gets professional attention to help her with her anxiety issues. I'm sure glad I did. I've been there. I knew what she was going through. For decades after surviving child abuse, old white guys who look like me could trigger anxiety meltdowns that left me non-functional. I couldn't even speak. I wasn't particularly worried about this episode causing any problems with my employer. Anyone who spends any time with me knows I'm one of the kindest, most non-threatening gentlemen you will ever meet. Transversely, anyone who spent just a bit of time with her must have seen how volatile she was, so I wasn't worried at all. A couple days later, I got a call informing me all my jobs had been cancelled. No explanation. No request to hear my side of the story before my jobs were cancelled. Just cancelled. No more income. For my own spiritual and psychological growth, though, I really do want to figure out why these situations upset me so obsessively. I still don't know the answer, but I've stumbled across the perfect solution, my purple beard. Do you know how many people see this old white man with my purple beard and think I'm a white supremacist? The answer is exactly one, apparently, that poor Latina woman in a constant state of anxiety meltdown, and I totally get where she's coming from because I've been there myself. Everybody else who sees my purple beard instantly gets it. I still get the occasional sour milk look, which is perfect because generally those are the bigoted white people I don't want to talk to anyway. The super cool folks of all races, they go out of their way to compliment me on my purple beard, and I love it it also led to a wonderful discovery. I'm not alone. As a matter of fact, there is an untapped fighting force of frantically forward-thinking, frustrated white guys just like me who are tired of being treated like white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Now who's the racist? Seriously, though, I'm just trying to use humor to talk about my own insidiously racist views against my own demographics white people, and how I and everybody else instantly assumes all old white men with white hair and blue eyes or white guys with cool tats are racists. Granted, it's a very complicated issue, but we're not all racist. and I have got to stop assuming that anyone who looks like me is a racist, and I humbly ask you to do the same. This brings me to the next thorny issue, The Talk that every parent of a black child in America has had to have with their children. And if you're a white person who doesn't know what I'm talking about when I say the talk, then I strongly urge you to continue listening, because I didn't know about the talk either. Now, according to the Google, and she knows everything, The talk is a colloquial expression for a conversation black parents in the United States feel compelled to have with their children and teenagers about the dangers they face due to racism, unjust treatment from authority figures, law enforcement, or other parties, and, this is the important part, how to de-escalate them. If I may please, I would also like to take a second here and address the recipients of the talk. You should listen to your parents. Tragically, they know what they're talking about, but I humbly ask you to please consider listening to me, too. There is an untapped army of frustrated white people like me who firmly support you and proudly stand on your side in this very complicated issue. Now, why did I not know about the talk? I grew up in a wealthy suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah. My parents really did a remarkable job instilling non-racist attitudes in their children. Well, at least in me. But being non-racist in a wealthy, all-white world is really nothing more than an academic pursuit. I mean, with all the Svensons and Johnsons and Jurgensons I grew up with, it was whiter than Oslo, Norway. No wonder they all picked on the faggot they didn't have any other minorities to persecute. My high school student body was around 3,000. I was in the 10th graduating class. When I was senior, there was a freshman in the 14th graduating class who was our first ever black student, and his father invented the artificial heart and dropped him off at school in a Rolls Royce. In spite of the fact that we lived in this bleach-white, wonder world completely void of minorities, both my parents went to great lengths to teach us the importance of respecting those who came from different backgrounds. My mother studied opera at the Royal Toronto Conservatory of Music and had a stunning high soprano voice. She was often engaged to sing in churches of all denominations and at various community centers throughout the Salt Lake Valley. She always dragged me along so that I would learn a healthy respect for those whose beliefs and backgrounds were different from ours. My father, well, frankly, I'm extremely proud of my father. During World War II, my dad fought the Japanese in the Pacific Theater. Dad didn't like to talk about his time in the Air Force beyond saying he had witnessed unspeakable atrocities perpetrated by both sides. He was also on the plane that was tasked with flying over Nagasaki at treetop level and filming the destruction only moments after the second bomb had been dropped. But he never spoke about that either. When Dad returned from the war, one of the first things he did was befriend a Japanese medical student at the University of Utah who had grown up in Topaz, the Japanese internment camp that was located in Utah. However, calling Topaz an internment camp is a misnomer at best. Topaz was a prison camp where we forced Americans of Japanese descent to live throughout World War II. Dan Oniki, went on to become our family doctor. If there's only one thing my entire family can agree on, it's how much we all loved Dr. Oniki. One evening during dinner in the late 1960s, the telephone rang. Now, in those days, polite people simply did not call during the dinner hour, so we knew it was some kind of an emergency. Dr. Oniki's practice had been going well, and he had purchased his dream home in an affluent neighborhood overlooking Salt Lake City. Dr. Oniki and his family sat down for their first dinner in their new home, and someone sprayed go-home Jap on the front door, poured gasoline on their lawn, and lit it. Dad started calling all his friends, the other sons of Utah's first families, and the next morning they all showed up, painted Dr. Oniki's house, and landscaped his yard, while their wives made a big picnic in the driveway and invited all the neighbors to join. Dr. Oniki never had problems with his neighbors again and he spent the rest of his life with his family in their dream home. When I was nine years old, my grandfather called a family meeting and told the adults in my life he thought I might be a homosexual. He instructed them all to come up with ways to give me the extra support I would need so I could have a happy life. At that time, many of the leaders of the Mormon Church and the Utah State Government were grandpa's relatives and patients including the Mormon prophet. The governor of Utah was his nephew. And the man who for 30 years led the Mormon church's official campaign to support any and all anti-gay legislations throughout the nation was our Uncle Bruce. It was 1969, and my grandparents chose to put love of family and love for their gay grandson above the viciously homophobic policies of the Mormon church, their own faith. Following the inspiring example of my parents and grandparents, I do my best to keep my life focused on these important issues. And I promise to do my best to keep my self-reflexive racism to myself. No, wait, that's not right. Oh, this is so confusing. My name is Stuart Merrill. And I woke up this day.